Our first lesson comes to us from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since, then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. with me for the, our gospel lesson about bearing one another's burdens. Okay, I'll stop. Tenth chapter of the gospel according to Mark, beginning with the 17th verse. 
As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If only we had a visual aid, maybe a large stuffed animal and a needle at this point, we might understand the analogy. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, that's a bear, not a camel. No, they said to one another, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but for God, ah, for God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the gospel of the Lord. Turn your hearts with me in prayer. Open your word to us, Lord. Help our minds to understand your teaching and not be distracted by what we think you said. Because you have words of eternal life to which we must attend. To the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, last week we visited Job, and when we left his suffering, he was there on the ash heap soothing his sores by scraping them with broken pieces of pottery and rubbing the ashes into the weepy wounds. And his wife telling him to just go ahead and curse God and die and telling her that when it comes with God, you have to take the bad with the good. We talked last week about suffering and how we tend to distance ourselves from it by rationalizing or intellectualizing we certainly prefer suffering as a spectator sport, right? Providing commentary, as did Job's friends, on the deservedness of those who are in pain, the great zero-sum gain of pain management, that if there is pleasure, there is pain, if there is suffering, it must be retribution, it must be deserved, and at least that's what we think when we watch suffering, right? We do it in a flash when we watch the news. If only those crazy Afghans had fought harder to hold on to their country, 
they wouldn't be in the place where they are now. We do so at the intersection from our cars as we look at the person begging for money thinking they're either running a scam or they shouldn't have gotten hooked on drugs in the first place. Or they're jobless, they should have tried harder in school, right? Of course, he got shot. What was he doing outside of his house in his own neighborhood on that particular night? And now those of us who are vaccinated are the smuggest of all those who are sick and suffering and dying in some odd way deserve their fate. Well, we'll come back to suffering next week and to Job, and we'll look this week at the other side of the coin. If suffering is a proportion to the lack of moral character, then pleasure is obviously the reward for those who are super good, right? That's the formula in today's Gospel reading. A rich man must be a worthy man, thought the disciples. Certainly someone who was positioned with wealth got through with thoughtful hard work and moral behavior. Undoubtedly that person is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus rebukes that thinking in his disciples. Clearly as Job smarted off to his wife. You got it backwards, says Jesus. Those with great possessions attempting to get into the kingdom are like camels being crammed through the eyes of a needle. Perhaps you've heard the story of the gate, the gate into Jerusalem, the eye of the needle it was called. It was a side entrance away from the main gate whereby you could get into the city after the main gate had been closed. It was designed so that it could be guarded by a single watchman. That's how small this small inlet in the walls of Jerusalem was placed. If you and your camel were to arrive at the city after sunset, you could go in through that tiny gate, you'd present your credentials to the single guard, and you could get through, but not your laden camel. If you wanted the beast with you, you'd have to take off all of the baggage from the camel, push it through the small gate, and then have your grumpy, angry, gangly beast of burden get down and crawl through commando style. It's a useful thought. The wealthy are still getting inside, provided they go to a certain amount of inconvenience to get there, the narrow gate of the needle's eye. Problem with that story is how the reference to the eye of the needle gate doesn't appear until 800 years after Christ. It was, again, an armchair analysis about hypothetical adjustments to balance the good and the bad. Hans-Dieter Betz, my New Testament professor at the University of Chicago, told our class when we studied this passage, imagine going to all that work of unpacking a camel and making him do what he does not want to do to call through on his knees only to make the wealthy feel more comfortable. For time, I fancied myself as a consultant standing outside of organizations Suede patched elbows on my jacket, arms crossed, pithy analysis from the expert. Diagnosing dysfunction, prescribing exercises to heal the wounds of the less insightful. There was an exercise that I learned as a conference when I was increasing my skill set as a consultant. Someone who was versed in addictions counseling broke the room into groups of five or six, all at individual tables. 
We sat at our tables with huge pieces of chart paper and markers at the ready. We were then informed that each table was a family unit, and we could be whomever we wanted to be in that family. You could be the youngest child or dad or the crazy aunt who lives in the attic. It didn't matter our familial role. But by taking on that role, our next job was to draw our abode on the chart paper in any fashion we chose. We were given collectively 20 or so minutes to undertake our task. And as we sat aside deciding the shape of our house, the facilitator came around and tapped one person on the shoulder at the table and asked him to step outside for some additional instructions. We were well on our way. A member of my particular group was a very, very talented artist, and she had drawn a beautiful Victorian-like dollhouse so that the front was open and we could draw our own individual rooms. And the excused member returned as we were laughing and cheering our various characters around the family table. We were coloring our beautiful home and each adorning how our room would look and how the common areas would be appointed when our guest who had returned picked up a black marker and began to scribble over all of our artwork, blacking out our otherwise pristine abode. We all immediately understood what the special instructions obviously had been. It was his job to destroy our work. For the closing 10 minutes of our breakout group, my temporary family members all tried to corral his disruptive behavior. One drew a box and said, you make a mess inside this box while we continue to draw. It didn't work. Several asked him why he was choosing to be such a jerk, even though we know he had been instructed to do so. Others cajoled him with jokes about dysfunction and annoyance as he became more and more obnoxious in interrupting our assignment. But to the end, he persisted in his destruction. Gathering back with the other families, the other tables, we all presented our drawings, and all were equally destroyed except one. There was a control group in which no one was invited to go outside and come back and be destructive. Their house was pristine. It was even cute. It had a garden and a little swing set next to it. The addictions counselor facilitator asked what the assignment had been, and in unison we all shared our insight. Obviously the individual was tasked with destroying our hard work, which was true, except there was a second instruction. Those taken out for the special assignment were also told, if anyone clearly tells you to stop, do so, and then cooperate. All of us skilled facilitators and consultants had it suddenly dawn on us that at not one single table had someone clearly said, stop it, or knock it off, or you're done now. The application's insight filled the room. Every one of us test families realized that we were now members of dysfunctional families. None of us had the clarity of mind to say a clear stop. We accommodated, we scolded, we explained, we discouraged, all to no avail. Like real families struggling with the devastation of an addict at the table, we failed the simplest and most direct line of defense, a clear, straightforward declaration, you are hurting us, you are hurting yourselves, and you will stop it. 
The man came to Jesus asking to be part of God's realm. He knew the basic instructions for right behavior. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. These basic rules of social interaction were well within his training, his behavior, and his knowledge. But then the text tells us, Jesus looked upon him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Traditionally, this passage is spun to be some condemnation of wealth. After all, when Jesus confronts the man, he is told to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. He walks away from the family of God, unable to perform that simple task because he has great possessions. But like the disciples, in that interpretation, we are distracted by the wealth. The passage uses wealth as an example, but that is not what the passage is about. It's interesting, whenever wealth walks into the room, how much that draws all of the attention away from any other learning. You've no idea how many times I have introduced myself as someone who was in high school band with Warren Buffett's son, Peter. As if somehow that gives me an edge in the market. Peter played saxophone, I played trumpet. We were probably 20 feet away. He was one year ahead of me. I'm not even sure he has ever introduced himself as a classmate of Oakley Krogh's youngest son. In fact, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. But that powerful waft of wealth takes our attention away from the dynamic of the passage and we're just like the disciples. What's going on here? That one tricky, powerful observation. Jesus looks at him and loves him. It is out of love that Jesus offers two more commands beyond the Decalogue, two more beyond the don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, two more things. Out of love, Jesus says, sell what you have. And then second, give the money to the poor. This is a private conversation with someone who has a problem. He wants to fit in, but as the text says, he is lacking one thing. For once, Jesus is not particularly driven by his passion for his love for the poor. He's driven by a deep love for someone who wants to be part of the family but won't let go of the very thing that keeps him on the outside. It makes him different. It disconnects him from other members of the household of faith. The disciples think it's about money. If the rich can't get in, who can get in? But the problem here isn't money. Wealth just happens to be the thing that this particular guy clings to and that grasp he holds more tightly than he could to his relationships in the kingdom. It's a twofold command offered to us as well. If you want to find your way across the threshold into the kingdom of God, then let it go, whatever it happens to be. Release your grip on whatever creates a distance between you and everyone else. It could be 
an addiction, it could be an attitude, it could be education, it could be politics, it could be status, it could be likes on Facebook, whatever is setting you apart, sell it for the sake of helping somebody else and for the sake of connecting yourself to the kingdom. Peter gets it, sort of. He said, look, we've left everything and followed you. That's going to work out okay, right? (laughs) Sometimes even in the act of giving up, if it's only about the act of giving up as opposed to grabbing on, then it is of no greater use. You see, when we talk about this passage as the rich young man, which is how it is actually labeled in all the Gospels in which it appears, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and goes away sad because he won't let go of his wealth, that allows all of us to be the consultants, doesn't it? We get to stand outside, we get to cross our eyes and say, oh, I see what he did there. Yeah, yeah, see that guy was rich? Yeah. And Jesus said he should give to the poor? Uh-huh. Well, we're neither rich nor poor, so we can just look at this text. And see, obviously, if the rich just gave up everything they had to the poor, then the world's problems would be solved. And here we sit in the middle class just kind of waiting for it to happen. Sometimes it's our own distanced, smug analysis that keeps us from the capacity to embrace, to enter the kingdom of God, to cross that threshold in which we are willing to set aside whatever we think makes us special in order for the special connection to the community of faith and God's children as brothers and sisters. Jesus says, truly I tell you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold in this age houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. To what do we cling? To what do we hold as if it is so important that is worth keeping us from being able to embrace one another? Let it go. Let someone who needs that have it, and in that act, cross into the threshold of the family of God. Amen. Amen. Stand with me.